Welcome to Challenging Christianity. I'm your host, Rebecca Kinnestrand. Do you consider yourself spiritual but non-religious? Agnostic? Or maybe you grew up in a church but don't believe what you were taught there anymore? This podcast exists in that space between all-in or all-out religion. Join us in asking questions that challenge the notions of Christianity. Welcome to Challenging Christianity. I'm Rebecca Kinnestrand. My co-host Daniel Dadashi is with me, and we have Pastor Mike Anderson back in the house. We're so happy to have you. Um, today we are going to be talking about listener questions. We have kind of a rapid fire. Well, we won't do rapid, but we have a questions that we want to have um, answered, and it's sort of as a committee here. So I'm actually going to turn this over to you, Danielle. Okay. Well, we've so if you have a question and you'd like to to send it in. All these questions came via our email, challengingchristianitypodcast at gmail.com. So send in your questions. Now, our first question for Pastor Mike, our Stump the Pastor session, is um, about the Virgin Mary. Is she really a virgin? Do I have to believe that Mary was a virgin in order to be a Christian. What's oh your answer? Oh my gosh, I have so, I have a lot of thoughts about the Virgin Mary too. <laughs> Is it bringing up your Catholic past? But, yeah, well, my Catholic past, but you know, I feel like um, it brings up just generally women in the church, mm-hmm. right? And to me, the Virgin Mary was just this, you know, on literally on a pedestal and the mother of Jesus. And, it, you know, being a mother in the church was A-OK, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and just all the connotations and things that went along with that and the veneration of Mary and where she really stands in Christianity. Um, I don't know, actually, from the Lutheran perspective where that is. So maybe you could enlighten yeah. us there. Well, I would like to speak to more than just the Lutheran perspective, but yeah. uh, more of a biblical perspective, maybe. Perfect. My first Perfect. response to, quote, virgin birth um, is to look at Scripture and some of the references to, quote, virgin birth there. And I think it might be helpful for the listeners to hear that the language involved, Hebrew and Greek, very important to understanding, quote, virgin birth. So a little background for you, first mm-hmm. of all. Um, There are four Gospels, of course, in the New Testament. Only Matthew and Luke mention virgin birth. Mark and John do not. So in Matthew and Luke, for example, Matthew, first of all. uh, Matthew is a Gospel written primarily for a Jewish audience. And when Matthew wrote his Gospel, his story of Jesus, he would go back to the Old Testament and find any possible reference that he could associate with Jesus. Mm-hmm. One of those references was to a chapter in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, where Isaiah is talking about the 8th century, 700-some years before the birth of Christ, to a situation that wasn't predicting the birth of Jesus, but he uses the reference of a young woman shall conceive and bear a child, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Mm -hmm. Now that sounds familiar to many people who have heard the Bible, Mm -hmm. and it's what Matthew quotes and puts in his book and associates that with Jesus. Problem is that in the Old Testament, when the Hebrew is used, it says a young woman, the word in Hebrew is Alma, and it's not the word virgin. Hmm. 
It's mm-hmm. a young woman mm-hmm. shall conceive and bear a child. It, says, it has nothing to do with, with sexual intercourse. Mm. It's simply a young woman mm-hmm. shall conceive and bear a child. And by the time that child is age 14, something would have happened in that 8th century. So it was Isaiah's way of dating time. It had nothing to do with the coming of the Messiah. Huh. It was simply a reference to a young woman. Well, Matthew picks that up, uses the word in Greek, parthenos. He doesn't use the word alma, Hebrew. He's writing in Greek. Mm-hmm. And when he translates the word alma into Greek, he uses the word parthenos, which is virgin. Mm. Oh. So we've got this issue mm. with the two languages, and then all of a sudden we've built this theology it is a around a theology, word, right. yeah. Parthenos, by the way, that word Parthenos is the origin of the word Parthenon, that's mm-hmm. really Parthenon. Mm-hmm. So Parthenos in the Greek is used in Matthew, and so an entire theology begins developing around that. Wow. So that's very important for your listeners to hear. It kind of reminds me of our conversation with Pastor Katie about biblical translations oh, and how yeah. important one word can be. Yes, right. very, very important. Well, and honestly, to a lot of oppression of women, to be quite mm-hmm. frank. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Well, that is really interesting. I hope that answers the listener's oh, question. Oh, no, I've got a lot more oh. to share. <laughs> a lot more to share. So, Give it. <laughs> so what we have here is an entire theology developing around how to identify as a Christian. Oh, so right. to be a Christian, you have to believe in this scientific impossibility at least most people think it's impossible there are some who think it is possible to have a virgin birth and so that makes you christian to believe something that is incredible beyond credibility right um, rather rather than to look at the um, background of the gospels and the reason for describing virgin birth from the start Uh, for example in the first century there are many examples of miraculous births of people who were great heroes and leaders. For example, Achilles. Hmm. I don't know if mm-hmm. any of you have watched the movie Troy, but Brad Pitt played Achilles. Oh, I watched it. I did too. <laughs> I watched yeah. it a couple times, <laughs> especially certain scenes. Yeah, I love okay. that Brad Pitt. <laughs> <laughs> Well, go on, go on, Pastor. Do you remember the scene where he's walking in the water and he's talking to his mother? Yes. Uh His mother is a Greek god. Do you remember that? Right. Yes, I do. He has a human father, Greek Greek god mother. Uh So he is a demigod, a son of God. Oh. He is a son of the gods. Mm -hmm. And so he has miraculous abilities. Now, listeners, hear this very carefully. So in the Greek mythology and telling those stories, when a god and a human being come together, the result is an Achilles or a Hercules. You've heard of Hercules. Mm -hmm. He is half god, half human, and they become strong and powerful and they dominate the world. Caesar Augustus, too, in the first century had a miraculous birth. He had a comet that came over when he was born. Mm -hmm. And that sounds familiar to Mm -hmm. the star that came over Bethlehem. He, too, very powerful. He had a miraculous birth. So in the first century, (laughs) when people talk miraculous birth or virgin birth, other than Jesus, they're talking about very powerful people at the very pinnacle of society. 
And they're the ones who um, basically exerted power from the top down. Mm. They were strong and beautiful and um, above the rest of us. The Christians come along. They tell virgin birth stories. They tell stories of a God-human interaction and, and uh, child. And they don't have a Hercules or an Achilles mm. or a Caesar Augustus. They have a child born and placed in a manger, a feeding trough, in the back of a barn. Mm -hmm. Who can possibly imagine that that would be the outcome of a God-human interaction? It's kind of a miracle that anyone even listened to the story. It's, it's absolutely why I'm a Christian, is those kinds of stories. It's not the science of a virgin birth. It's the mm -hmm. fact that God would come and be present in poverty, in a, someone who is wounded, someone who is cast out. Poor Mary had to give birth in the back of a barn. Mm -hmm. Jesus was a carpenter. He associated with the poor and the underprivileged. And the Christians in the first century said, this is our God. This is our Messiah. Not the Messiah who's at the top of the pyramid, not the Caesar Augustus, not the generals, not the Achilles, Brad Pitt type people, <laughs> not, not the Hercules. We have a carpenter who is just like us, and God chose to be with us and mm. work God's miracle from the bottom up. That's the miracle of the virgin birth story. It's mm. not the science. It's the fact that the Christians chose to emphasize and celebrate a God who comes into our poverty, into our woundedness. And yet we have 2,000 years of people telling women, no, no, no sex before marriage, Virgin Mary, you know. I mean, what? How does it get so lost? Is that so your lost? Catholic background coming out here? I, <laughs> I thought that was everybody's background. Uh, no, that's not quite That's as what strong. I was told, that's loud not, and clear. <laughs> not quite as strong in the Lutheran Well, tradition. I'm telling you. Anyway, I think that that's very, very common. And I feel like, yeah, I, I guess the question is, how does it get so lost? I mean, what happened to make it so lost? Was it uh, Which when part? Rome... The idea of the virgin birth, you know, as opposed to, no, no, you just, Mary was a virgin, so you need to stay a virgin until you're, you know, married and or whatever. Like, how does it get so lost, the original idea? There were these other miraculous stories, and this was a different one. And yes. where did that transition happen from the people of the way going out and converting people into Christianity, saying this is our God, which again, I can't believe anybody listened to them because why wouldn't you rather have a Hercules or an Achilles? Yeah. You know, when did the rituals and the doctrine take over? Well, the first few centuries of the Christian movement really emphasized following the path of Jesus and not just believing Jesus is the Son of God or believing in the virgin birth, Many of those things came together, those doctrines came together in the 4th century, in the 300s AD, as a way of bringing the entire church together under and around one set of beliefs, mm. intellectual beliefs. Mm -hmm. Before that, there were many different varieties of Christianity which emphasized various aspects of Jesus' teaching. Dozens of different Christianities. But by the time of the 4th century and Constantine, the first Christian emperor of the Roman Empire, 
it started coming together as a way to hold the entire empire together. It was the glue that held society together. And so a common belief system, intellectually mm -hmm. belief mm -hmm. system, mm -hmm. needed to be in some ways imposed <laughs> on mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. And so that's the beginning of it and mm -hmm. how that sort of took over our um, church in some ways. I had a, a friend of mine who was actually a street person and uh, I was visiting a homeless shelter and we got talking about the Roman Empire. And <laughs> As one does. And he said... <laughs> He said, when you're with Pastor Mike. It's never come up for me. But <laughs> Pastor Mike, left, right, and center. As one does. He brought it up. Oh, okay. This, that's the fascinating thing. He's the one that brought it up. He was um, Roman Catholic, and he said mm. um, the Roman Empire and Constantine ruined the Christian movement mm. when it became an official religion of the empire. And I thought, no, what are you talking about? Mm. And he, I think, had something going because... Mm -hmm. By becoming empire, becoming the church becoming empire, it took away from the path of Jesus and focused more on the doctrine about Jesus. Yeah. And I think that's the point he was trying to make. And I tell you, I did my research after our conversation and I changed my point of view about a lot of things because of that conversation. Well, actually, the conversation about doctrine kind of moves us into our second oh, good. listener Let's question, go on. Yes. which is about doubt. Oh, What does a Christian do with doubt in their faith life? Well, that was another thing I wasn't allowed to do. You weren't allowed to doubt? No. <laughs> that will send you to the bad place. <laughs> oh, oh, boy. And you must confess that as well. <laughs> so <laughs> That sounds very... Just the idea of confession sounds intimidating enough. Uh, it I, is. Yeah. <laughs> No, I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, cast dispersions. There's people who uh, really, really love confession, and I can understand its cathartic effect. Um, but doubt is, I think, something everybody has, and I think you should be definitely questioning. Um, but I think that in a lot of uh, a lot of the people maybe listening feel like that isn't. There is no room for doubt when it comes to religion or belief in something you you believe it or you don't it's probably the most common question i get in hushed tones from mm. nervous teenagers on day four or five of a mission trip is <laughs> what if i doubt sometimes right and i get you know what if i don't believe in god or i'm not sure i do believe in god and you know it's like you said it's kind of this hushed thing and mm -hmm. we all have in the ether of society this idea they don't don't do that or you're declaring i am atheist and i don't believe you uh -huh. know this room this to breathe in this doubt feeling mm -hmm. it feels like it's oppressed yeah my answer to the kids which is probably theologically imperfect but you know so am i <laughs> i would turn i usually say to the kids that the opposite of faith is not doubt it's certainty that hmm. if that faith lives in concert with doubt mm -hmm. and that those two things aren't in opposition, that they build on each other. But I don't know, Pastor Mike, is that the wrong answer? I've only felt certainty a couple times uh, in, in my faith life and very much, you know, lightning bolt types of moments mm -hmm. where you feel just completely, you know... Um, Everything is fine. Everything is okay. You're swimming in this sea of sort of peace and contentment. And 
you don't feel like future and I, I don't know how to describe it, but I've had these moments and they come and go relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's those those moments of non-doubt that I kind of cling to yeah. in my moments when I'm like, I don't know what's going on. So I like how about that. you, Pastor Mike? Well, I picked up, my ears perked up a little yeah. bit, uh, Danielle, when you mentioned with the young people who are expressing some doubt, you say mm. that the opposite of faith is certitude. Is that what you say? Mm. I say the opposite of faith, faith is certainty, not doubt. Certainty, mm-hmm. not doubt. So um, when I um, say the opposite of faith, I say the opposite of faith is uh, fear. Mm. And what I mean by that is uh, faith for me has become a path, not a set of beliefs. So that path is a path of, of risk. It's a path of integrity. It's a path of supporting the poor and wounded in our midst. It's a path of opposition to oppressive powers. Uh, it's a path of kindness and love even to stranger and enemy. Um, and the opposite of that is fearfulness mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. not t- find the courage to live on the edge a little bit. Um, I think Martin Luther King Jr. would agree with that too, mm. because he did not want to be a civil rights leader. Um, he was almost coerced. He was 26 years old when the other pastors in Birmingham, I think it was Birmingham, Alabama, said, we want you to stand up and speak for us. And he knew that that was the faithful path Mm. to stand up and speak. But he was fearful. He would be putting his life, his family life on the line. Mm -hmm. So for me, that gets to the very definition of what it means to be religious. When you talk about doubt and when people, listeners ask about doubt, usually that's a vestige of this whole doctrinal system that defines religion. Mm -hmm. Religion is defined by a set of doctrines that you either believe in or you don't believe in. And the criterion for belief is usually scientific fact. That's why the big issue with virgin birth. You either believe it, it's a scientific impossibility, and you believe it, then you're faithful. Or you don't believe it, and you're an atheist. I think it keeps a lot of people out of actual, you know, steeple churches. Well, I, yeah, if... If that was all there was to it, I would not be part of a steeple church. You know, and we're trying to um, present this idea that um, faith is a path, not mm-hmm. a set of doctrines and belief. Religion is a way of being in the world, not simple, simple intellectual adherence to a set of doctrines. Uh, that's critical because all the doubt questions relate to this set of doctrines. I can't believe that doctrine about, quote, the virgin birth or the existence of God. Um, and by the way, another thing I say to young people or to anyone who expressed doubt is when they say, I don't believe in God, I'll, I'll say, well, God believes in you. <laughs> so, and that tries to, to, shake, you know, to shake them up a little bit to think that you know, it doesn't all depend on you either especially in our Lutheran doctrine. Mm -hmm. We believe that our salvation, our um, path, our um, connection with God doesn't just depend on us. It depends on God, too. God's the one who meets us and continues to reach out to us. And to me, um, just allowing that reach out, (laughs) that love to be there is faith. Faith is more surrender than effort. Mm -hmm. It's more surrender and letting God's love surround you. That comment you made a moment ago about swimming in this 
moment of holiness. Mm, you didn't mm-hmm. use the word holiness. No, but, but yes. But there is a sense of surrender to it, a yes. surrender to that peace. And that's faith. That's trust. Uh, in our um, Sunday morning worship services, we will oftentimes um, change one word in the Apostles' Creed. Um, when we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Um, the word believe there um, in the English is a little bit different from the word in the Greek. Again, here's a, a word mm-hmm. thing. Um, in the Greek, the word, and in Hebrew, the word believe has a sense of following and walking with, not just something with the mind, an intellectual assent. So we change the word to trust. I trust mm. in God. I trust in mm. Christ. I trust in the Holy Spirit. And that has a sense of surrender, letting go and letting God. And I think that's what Martin Luther King Jr. did, that finally it wasn't by simply his own efforts that he stood up and spoke out for civil rights. He surrendered to the path that God would lead. And there's something powerful about letting go, mm-hmm. about surrendering to that. And there's a freedom that comes to it. You're not free to worrying so much about your retirement plan or or even life and death kinds of issues because mm-hmm. you are following this path that you described as being surrounded by this peacefulness. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense that you find peace even in the strife of conflict around injustice or oppression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I also want to bring to the listeners' attention that as Pastor Mike's talking, even it, it's like my life doesn't have a ton of well major drama in it. You know, we talk about feeding, you know, housing the homeless and war and strife and all that. But I'm also aware that a lot of people we talk to, and myself included, my my struggles are more mundane. But I still take these ideas and I walk into my office and I'm, I'm with my team of people every day and I purposely choose positivity over a negativity. You know, if somebody's doing something that's a little irritating, I choose to see it, you know, in a different way than another way. And that's all, you know, almost everything you see and do during the day, you have a choice to move in one direction or the other. And I feel like that's where I, you know, on the day-to-day, the mm-hmm. daily for me is more about trying to choose a more positive path that is presented to me or look at things more. Because we talk about love and love seems so overwhelming because I'm like, well, if I'm just at work, I don't love you, but I'm going to treat you in a com- in a compassionate way, you know, on all the little, little things that can happen in your life. So I just want you know, I want to put it out there that yeah. this is a daily, this is a it is. minute to minute sometimes. I'd, I'd love spiritual. to reflect on what you just said. Yeah. It's powerful. And I believe what you just said is rooted deeply in this issue of doctrine and doubt. And let me explain why. When you create a religion that is a fundamental aspect of society, Western society, that has this sense of either you're in or out, either you're a believer or a non-believer, either you're lost or you're saved, that attitude tends to permeate almost everything we do. And we end up looking at people as either good or bad, mm. or mm. or either or. Mm-hmm. It's either this or that. Stupid but, or smart. <laughs> but really, <laughs> right. mm-hmm. the way we're trying to describe here as a faith, as a walk, as a path, you begin describing the world around us as both and. There is a sense of 
of nuance here mm -hmm. and a sense of inclusion where no one really is left out. You don't have to divide the world into lost saved anymore if you understand a God who loves everybody. And so when you're at work and there's some trouble going on, the person who's causing some trouble, they're still included. I mean, they're still part of the big picture. Mm. You may have to let them go down the road. But <laughs> yeah, you do yeah. so with, mm -hmm. with grace and dignity and with a respect for their basic human nature, which is in our understanding, a reflection of the divine. And so we end up focused more on this inclusive aspect of God's nature rather than the separation or exclusion or um, lost saved sort mm. of focus. Mm -hmm. Do you follow how that matches Absolutely. even our everyday? Absolutely. I feel like, does that go into something? Where it goes right? into a little bit our third question you from see, the readers. You see, we're just naturals. Right. Pastor Mike knows where we're going, I feel like. <laughs> Stump the pastor. So this last question is a little longer. Okay. What happens when Christianity fades away like other religions that have ah. come and gone through the ages? We see the tread already in much of the Western world and in the Pacific Northwest in particular. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I guess a, a forward thinking yes. look at this from a historical perspective. What do you think, Pastor Mike? About the decline of the church? decline About of the church. Well, I guess their question is more meta in the sense of other religions have faded away. It's likely that Christianity will fade away. And what is their what is their specific question? What, what, oh gosh, let me yeah, look back again. It was, what happens when Christianity oh, fades what happens? away? Do you think, well, something will be, have replaced it? Will, Maybe we'll, we, we will have reformed it and reformed it. it. Are we in for another reformation? Are we in for a slow fading away? Are we in for... Will the, eventually Jesus go by the wayside of, what's a religion that's faded away? Like the Gaia or something? I don't know. I don't really know. So I'm, <laughs> Those, I'm that here. certainly is a, what did you say? Meta question. Meta question. <laughs> yeah. Big, um, big question about society, about history, about movements in history. Right. Um, what pops into my mind is the replacement, basically, of ancient Greek and Roman mythology and religion that mm -hmm. had Zeus and Jupiter and all those various gods with Christianity all those years ago. And it was a big change for society. It was very, very, um, like very much like an earthquake for society. Uh, what's going to happen now if Christianity gets replaced? Well, first of all, I'm not sure Christianity is going to be replaced. Um, we have had ups and downs in Christianity in America for centuries, really, way back to the Pilgrim period. There have been times when Christianity has been really strong and times when Christianity has been really weak. There's a, I'm a Hispoff and I mm -hmm. enjoy reading about, well, the Revolutionary War period. Mm. And I was really surprised that um, in 1776 in America, only 20% of the population was a church, church member. Wow. Well, were there churches <laughs> to oh, go to? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I imagine people out in like West no, Virginia no, no, and the, well, you know. churches to go okay. to. But okay. it's just I, that. I would have assumed a lot more. Yeah, if you're yeah, near I one, you too. win every Sunday. Yeah, I, I read That's that like and I go, TV, really? right? The TV really? told me that. Yeah, Little House on the Prairie. Everyone yeah, goes to church. The TV told me that. Everyone goes to church. <laughs> so there have been cycles of church involvement and non church involvement. Are we in a cycle or are, are we in a decline? 
Um, Europe is ahead of us. Their um, decline in church attendance is, is very significant. Um, very few people are in churches anymore. In America, it seems to be going in that direction. Um, so it, you know, the reader may be right. Maybe Christianity is going to be fade away, fading away. Um, my personal belief and why I'm a pastor and why I do what I do is that I, I want to hold on to Jesus as the, as the leader of a movement. Mm. <laughs> Someone who uh, shows us how to be in this world. And sometimes we can be freed up to follow that path when Christianity is not the centerpiece of the entire society. Mm -hmm. There's a word um, that's often used in theological circles called Christendom, and it's mm -hmm. rooted in the word kingdom. Mm -hmm. Christendom has to do with a society that has Christianity sort of embedded in it, right. and that we're moving out of a Christendom society where Christianity is embedded in the, the nation. And there can be some blessings to that. A little bit reminiscent of um, the monks in Ireland and uh, during the Dark Ages where they mm -hmm. would pull back and they would keep the faith going. Even though it was a small number of people in society, that small number of people kept a movement alive. And mm -hmm. people who um, maybe have to choose to be religious, choose to follow Christ. There may be smaller in number, but maybe more nimble and maybe able to create and do many wonderful things. Mm -hmm. So there could be opportunity here too, even with the decline of church membership. Um, we may not have a crisis on our hand. We may have an opportunity. Um, so that's the Chinese character, you know, crisis is a combination of two symbols danger and opportunity. Hmm. So maybe the crisis of church decline is an opportunity for us to narrow the focus and to proclaim this very kind of message at the centerpiece of this podcast, to reclaim Christianity away from the emphasis on doctrine and more to the emphasis on path, on justice, on compassion, on inclusivity. And you just call it something else? No, we, I think we call it Christianity because that's the so, true Christianity, uh -huh. in my mind. Mm -hmm. That's what Christianity is all about. And I think maybe a new reformation, a new way of seeing what church is, is a blessing for the next century. Mm -hmm. And that's really what we're trying to do in this church, Holy Spirit Lutheran. Well, I have people who are not, uh, you know, they're non-affiliated and non-religious. And uh, their whole thing is like, well, let's just raise people to be moral, like why do we need the church at all? Why do we need to say it's Jesus or anybody else? We'll just raise them to be moral. And my question was, well, what do you, how do you do that? Well, what do you mean by that? Where your, where is your moral coming from? Well, you would teach it. And I was like, where did yours come from? You know, because I don't think that they realize that they're swimming in Christendom. You know, that the Judeo-Christian, you know, Christendom has been around and that's what's taught you that, you know, yeah. <laughs> because when you go back, 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 it's like we could just be born and it's like survival of the fittest and kill the weak and the strong live and so be it. And so it's interesting to try to even talk about meta, pull, pull out of the swimming pool that you've been in, it's like taking a fish right out of the water. It's almost, it's so difficult. That is really profound, Rebecca. That's good. Swimming in Christendom. <laughs> I, I find that to be a helpful phrase. You may hear that in a sermon someday. Oh. <laughs> you heard it first. I wrote a sermon. You heard it here first, folks. Yeah. 
So well, there is the sense that yes, we're quote swimming in Christendom, and by in the West, in, in the, West, the West, of course, yes. in the West, mm-hmm. with the decline of Christendom, then where do you get your morals, your framework? Yes, and so your friends say, well, we don't really need Christendom. Right. We can. Their response, I suspect, would be, well, we can. Everybody knows what good is, what nice is. Let's be nice. Yeah, they're like, treat each other the way you want to be treated. I'm like, who said that? Who said that? (laughs) They don't even know what they're saying, right? They're like, yeah, that's in the Bible, dude. I think a significant danger and probably a greater reason for the decline of the church is not so much belief system, what we've been talking about. Well, that's part of it. But another major part of it is that people today are no longer joiners Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. any kind of group or community. And many of the young people I know, many of the people who are not church people, they're not really anti-Jesus or anti-God. They're more, I don't have time to be involved with that. I'm busy with my life and I've got my big screen TV and I've got my social media and my I'm job. <laughs> I've got my job mm-hmm. to do, so I'm busy. I don't have a lot of extra time to be a joiner. And so they are assuming in this Christendom from people who have joined in the past to mm-hmm. promote a sort of structure in society. And today, the big danger is individualism. We mm-hmm. are people who live individual lives and oftentimes rather lonely. Oh, it's so sad. It's an epidemic, right? And loneliness it's, kills people. It's yeah. an epidemic. It's an epidemic. Yeah. And well, I think that that's likely to die out because eventually you're going to, you see, I, I need something else. Well, I hope so. I don't see that happening yet. <clears throat> no, In the it's Seattle very new. area, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the pro- proportion of single families single-person families is greater than two, three, four-person families. Mm-hmm. By that, I mean there are more single-person families than any other family mm-hmm. type. So there are a lot of you know solo folks out there, yeah. and people are not connecting with church, but they're also not connecting with Kiwanis clubs or Rotary clubs. Our Kiwanis club here in Kirkland, Washington, um, meets um, midday, and they're all, I think, over 70 years old. Every single one of them is over 70 yeah, years old. Yeah, that's, yeah. Or I'm thinking, what would be more young person group? It would be more your activities, like going to... Going on a, to yoga class or, or mountain hiking climbing. Club. Yeah, mountain climbing or hiking or skiing. Or I even have friends who are like, I'm in a bread baking group. You know, yeah. like there's all kinds of things, but so it's you're very niche. Trying to create a little. Well, bit. there's these niche groups, and you tend to join or you join classes or that sort of thing. There's a lot of classes, and I would say that the social life revolves around your activity. Like for a long time, mine was Lindy Hop. I was dancing all the time, or you're in a theater. Yeah. But the thing with that is, and I think we touched on this before, is that they're they can be ephemeral, and they can kind of fade away, and there yeah. isn't like a solid third place yeah. you know and they make the coffee shops the third place you know you mm-hmm. have homework and you need a third place and I've always found that um, yeah it's it's good for a group of people who want to go on their own terms come and go as they want and and so on but it it fades it's ephemeral it isn't yeah. it isn't a solid thing like who's gonna be there for you well when there's a death 
or who's going to be there for you for surgery are you going to call on those friends that you met at the yoga class are they going to maybe they right maybe maybe and you know when i had my kids it was baby classes and stuff but i would say out of 35 women that i met there i'm still friends with one Mm -hmm. and i consider that pretty good actually i do have one friend but um, yeah, it can be very tough and lonely as a young adult, particularly. So the, ch- the decline of church behind this question has to do with doctrine, what we've talked about a lot, but it also has to do with patterns in our society as a whole. Mm. Uh, also what we just talked about, people becoming more individual, um, people living um, you know, next to their big screen TV and their social media platform. And that's how people are starting to live nowadays. And I think there is still a yearning for face-to-face connection with people. And I think, Rebecca, your description of people joining various classes is an attempt to do that. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think human nature will cause that to continue. I agree with you. I think it will. Yeah. So it's not going anywhere, in other words. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and neither are we. And neither are we. Although I think this wraps up our listener no question more questions episode. Right no now. more questions. We need new right questions. Now. Please write in. Challenging Christianity Podcast at gmail.com. Send in your questions. We'll try to stump either Pastor Mike or maybe we'll find another pastor that we can try to stump <laughs> with your questions. Thanks so much for listening. Bye bye.